0: Good morning. Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study. We pray that your spirit and your angels will join us, that this morning our minds can be enlightened. We can see you clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in our quarterly, The Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And the lesson title this week is The Apostle John. Somebody read uh, the entire day there, starting at that first paragraph, A Church Tradition...
1: A church tradition describes the Apostle John as an old man living in Ephesus. Because of his feeble condition, his followers had to carry him to church. As they met together, his only spoken words were, Little children love one another. His followers, tired of hearing John repeat the same thing all the time and asked, Master, why do you always say this? It is the Lord's command, he replied, and if this alone be done, it is enough. Whether true or not, this story captures the essence of this son of thunder who was eventually transformed into a son of love and grace. In John's three epistles or letters, we see the heart of a man whose life is motivated by love. We see also some of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. One of the most famous is, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one.
0: We have a couple of interesting things here that we're going to talk about from our very opening uh, passages here. But let's start first with the, with the aspect of the Lord's command to love. And in John thirteen thirty four thirty five, 35, we actually read, this is Jesus speaking, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then, of course, in 1 John three eleven. John writing, and this is his command, to believe in his name, the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So the question, what do these texts mean? Can love be commanded? Can God get love from his creatures by exercising his authority and ordering, commanding, directing, dictating us to love? No. Can he get love by the use of his omnipotent power? Yeah. Then how do we understand these texts where it clearly says, a new command I give you, love one another, and this is his command that we love one another? How do we understand them if we can't get love by commanding it?
2: Was it, was it really a new command? <laughs>
0: that's, that's, that's another question we're going to ask whether it's new or not. Okay. Okay? That's a question we need to explore whether it was a new command. But the fact is it was a command, at least that's the way it's written,
1: well, it's kind of like the Ten Commandments. They're not—he can't command us to do the things that the Ten Commandments say. It's just if by following these commandments we have a better way of life. It makes our life happier for us if we love other people and are compassionate, and caring. Then we have a better life.
0: I agree. I, can't, I agree with that too. Other thoughts?
3: Uh, my Bible says, "For this is the message which you have heard from the first that we should love one
0: another." This is the message. Which version? Uh, that's Amplified yeah. Bible. Amplified Bible. So, it's a very nice paraphrase. Is uh, Do you like that paraphrase?
2: Makes more sense. Mm-hmm. It
0: is.
1: And mine says, the the message you heard from the very beginning. So, again...
0: Okay, well, try, well, try John 13, 34,
1: and 35. Um, and now I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another.
0: Okay, that's Jesus talking. Now I give you a new commandment. Uh, love one another. Um... But Zechariah 4 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, implying that, that the, the Spirit doesn't work by an exercise of authority, might, and power. Yet these verses, I mean, do these verses ever get interpreted as God commanding, God directing, God dictating, God exercising authority to order us to behave in a certain way? Does it ever get interpreted that way?
1: I suppose it does.
0: Oh, well, let me read to you out of Desire of Ages, page 22 this book, and see what you think about what this book says. Earth was dark through misapprehension of God. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifest in contrast to the character of Satan. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and depth of the love of God can make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the sun of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. So, do we have a contradiction here where Jesus is saying, I command, the new command I give you, you love one another. Uh, the book, Desire of Ages, says love cannot be commanded. yes.
3: Could it be that the emotion of love is to be expressed, and the command is to express the love in loving ways, loving things, loving thoughts, uh, loving actions, things that could be interpreted as loving? The emotion you cannot command, but but the action you could encourage to show show your love in, in, in practical ways, shall we say, as James talks about
0: I find that a very interesting thought because we, you know, he, now he's commanded how we behave, but he's not commanded the attitude of the heart. But think about that in your marriage. How would that work if you have to be commanded to act in loving ways? You have love for your wife, but you don't show it unless somebody commands you to do it. And then if you're commanded, you know, I, I bought you a present on your birthday and I brought you flowers and I treated you nice because I've been commanded to do so. Otherwise, you know, just because I have love in my heart, it wouldn't naturally result in acts of love. It, it, it only happens because I've been commanded. No, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't Paul say that love, the love of God compels us? That when we have this love, I mean, we can't really stop acting in love once, once that love's there. Isn't that really true? I mean, when you love somebody in your life, doesn't it compel you to action? Don't you begin acting in ways because the love is there?
1: Yes, and we're watching our teen, well, not a teenager, but our young adult fall in love, and it makes him do things that he wouldn't ordinarily do. So it's the same thing. It compels first the love and then the compelling behavior.
0: So I, so I, I like the, the little twist you're throwing on that, but yet if, if there's really that genuine love filling the heart, the love that wells up and flows over, as, as he described to the woman at the well, the water of life boiling up to, to life and flowing over to many, do we have to be commanded then to act in love? Yes?
3: Not to, not to argue too often, but... Uh the, the, the things that we say are so natural are culturally determined. I mean, what, what a boy does to show his love to a girl is, is influenced by what his culture thinks is a loving thing, I think. I mean, he doesn't just come up with this spontaneously, totally.
0: I agree with you, no question about it, but when he loves her, his heart is interested in, sh- in moving his behaviors in ways to demonstrate that, whatever is culturally appropriate to the time.
3: Well, this is trying to set the cultural
0: determination. Th- that's one theory. Let's, let's see if there's other ideas on this, though. Other, other ideas.
1: What about um, a marriage that, that has gone awry and they've fallen out of love? Do you not counsel them to do things to start to set the heart aright?
0: Certainly, there's a place for that because there's unhealthy behaviors going on. We have to stop those unhealthy behaviors. Can you command, though, when patients come to me for marital counseling, do you think that I can give commands? Okay, I command that you, this is a new command I'm going to give you because you guys have clearly not experienced this in your relationship. A new command is that you begin to love one another. You You, you think that would really help resolve marriages if I command them to do it? No, no. No. Let's ask another question then. The Greek translated command is the Greek word entole. And it can be translated either command, commandments, or precept. Also, the same word is interpreted those, those three ways into the English, precept. Does it make a difference if we read Jesus' words as rather than a command, a precept I give you? And what is a precept?
2: A principle. A, uh...
0: a, principle. a new principle I give you. If Jesus is saying to them, I'm not commanding you, I'm not ordering you, I'm not using my authority to direct you, I'm telling you a new principle to live by, a new principle I'm giving you. I'm unfolding your mind to the principle of God's government, the principle of love. I'm I'm sharing that with you, I'm giving this to you. Does that change the whole dynamic here? Now we can have harmony that love can't be commanded, but a new principle of love can be given. Yes. Yeah, I think love is a
4: choice. You know uh, with our own flesh it's contrary to our intuitive <coughs> to love people we will love ourselves but not the other people and then you know Jesus commands you choose to love and as you love the other people you feel love and then you will become more spiritual and you become more
0: natural yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said. Love is more than just a feeling. It's absolutely an intelligent choice. Yes. Uh, and it's a, And that choice is based upon understanding the principle of love. Yes, your you thought.
1: I was just going to say, love awakens love. The small child who has never experienced love cannot give love. And so only we experience God's love. And of course, as children experience love from our parenting people in our lives. We can experience it. Then we can give it back. So to command love, I think Christ has already invited us into a relationship, a loving relationship with him, so we can experience his love. Then we have something
0: that we in turn can give to other people. Yes, back in the corner. Um, John 13, not only does he give them the new principle, he also clarifies so what love is. There may have been a blurry definition before, and now he says, as I've
2: loved you, so you should love one another. Um, Life may not have even known what love truly was before Christ, before Christ appeared on earth. So there was probably a good point
0: Does anybody like the idea of God ordering? dictating, directing love, or the idea that Christ is saying, hey, a new precept, a new principle of life, a new principle that my government, my kingdom is founded upon. My kingdom is a kingdom of love. And this is what life is based upon. This is what happiness is based upon. This is what health is based upon. And I'm sharing this love with you. A new precept I give you, a new principle I give you to love one another rather than loving self. Does that come across different than a dictatorial edict? You must because I'm the one in authority and power and instructs you and commands that you do this or else. Are those, those come across differently. Yes.
4: This was given to a group of people, though, who were steeped in the traditions of the Hebrew writings. These were, not, these were people who were not of this mindset. For one thing, they already had the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments cannot be kept. They're descriptors. They had a whole generation or generations of people who were trying to keep the commandments.
0: The Ten Commandments can't be kept by who? Did Christ Christ keep them?
4: Not in the sense that he he, he read this list and then did them. No.
0: Did he fulfill fully everything that the Ten Commandments were were about?
4: He did not keep them. He did not set out that this is my rules and this is what I'm going to live by.
0: Any other thoughts about that?
4: (laughs) He kept the commandments. He preserved them.
0: Yeah, did he break any of the commandments? No. He can't break
3: not sure.
1: He put he twist he put a new twist on them.
0: Surely. I mean, he he kept them the way they were designed to be kept.
2: Because they came from his character in the first place.
0: Yeah.
4: They're descriptors though. They're not commandments.
0: Oh, I agree. I agree. They were diagnostic instruments to diagnose defects, to expose... Uh, you know, we look into the law to see the defects of character, the law was given so that sin might abound or be exposed or be, or be shown for its ugliness that it is. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. But didn't Christ completely live in harmony with the law? Totally?
4: He lived in harmony with the law, but he kept them.
0: Hmm. Other thoughts about that? No? Because, uh, because we're coming to this principle of love. Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. Christ said that all the law and the prophets hang on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Love is what the basis of the law is all about. And Christ perfectly lived out a life of love in every turn, every motive, every instant, didn't he? And so then he would have fulfilled the law. Love is fulfillment of the law. Certainly didn't break it. Yeah? But I understand what you mean about it being a, a list of, of uh, uh, distilled diagnostic principles or, or rules that we can look at to, to, to see, and, and if we approach it in a legalistic way of works to achieve, that that's not really the, the the point behind it at all. There's no question you're right about that. Yes? One way of looking at it, uh,
3: the commandments is like Jesus' command, God's command, let there be light. They are, free. They are not. They are not just... Cunitive things that you that you tell people to do, but his, his His command, if you want to call it that, creates these things or produces these things, rather than just demanding that we create them. We're not creators of anything.
0: Well I like that. It's more like a promise: what He will do in us. Uh, when you trust me, when you open your heart, when you let me live in you, I promise you will not have other gods before you. You will not take my name in vain. You will not uh, you know, bow down to other images. You will not break the Sabbath. You will, not, you will not do any of these things when I live in you and I've written my law in your heart and mind and created a right spirit within you. So it's really a promise of what will look like when his creative power dwells in us again, rather than a list of rules that we have to somehow achieve by our own work. Yes? One of
3: Ellen White's most uh, quoted Saying is that his biddings are
2: his enablings.
0: Yes, I like that. All his biddings are enablings. Yes.
2: Sometimes when you're first starting out, they have to be rules. Because it doesn't come naturally until years and years of building the habit, of ingraining it in your mind, of opening those pathways. Like, um, say, in a marriage... Say you're a newlywed, you don't understand what kind of love is achieved by a couple that has been together for, say, 50 years. And when you've only been married for one or two years, you think you're in love, yes, but it might be tempting to cheat. And the grass looks greener on the other side. You don't really think about, oh, we've been together for 50 years. The kind of love we have is something that is never going to be replaceable when you've only been married for one year. And um, same with, say, like exercise. When you're first starting out, you have to set rules for yourself, even though um, there are benefits and you might not understand what kind of level you will achieve after years and years and years of doing the same exercise. At first, you have to set a rule, and then later on it becomes a habit, and then later on it's something you can't go without because you've built so much, you understand how...
0: Paul, Paul talks about that in Hebrews chapter 5 going into chapter 6 where he talks about um, you, though, you should, though you should be grown up by now and on spiritual meat, you're still on milk. Not having understood the truth about righteousness, you're still focusing on um, you know, acts of sin and, and, and things like that. In other words, the, the, the rules, and what does it say in Timothy, that the law was not given for the righteous but for the unrighteous, for those who do all these wicked things. In other words, the children do need those rules. But as we grow up in Christ, the rules are not something we need anymore because it's fulfilled in the heart and the character. And the law is written in us, and we live that law out, so we don't need those external rules anymore to lead us to Christ because we're now in union with Christ. But so as children, we do need that. But as, as mature, regenerated Christians, the external law doesn't become as important because it's now written in the heart where God wants it. So
2: how do we, how do we teach somebody, let's say, at the beginning...
0: Think about your kids when they're little and they have to, you have rules in your home for them to brush their teeth. As they grow up, do they come to a point where they don't need the rule anymore? When you go away to college, college students brush their teeth because, you know, well, my mom has a rule and if I don't, I'll get punished. Is that why we brush our teeth? Now, when we were five, we might have. But somewhere along the way, something changed and we do it not because of the rule anymore. We do it because we've internalized the principle. We understand. It's part of who we are. We want to do it freely. No one has to make us anymore. That's what God is trying to do with his law, where we come to love others because we want to love others. We have been changed. We see the wisdom behind it. It's part of who we are now. Uh, right, we got to move on. we got to move on. That's, okay.
2: that's, just, that's part of what, what our class is. And that's part of the resistance we are meeting, is people that are stuck on the rules. And we are trying to move above that.
0: No, there's no question about it. That's part of what most, most of Christianity is stuck on, is the rules. So that's exactly right. To them. That's my we have to help them understand the reasons behind the rules. And we've talked and here many times about the law of love being a principle upon which life is based. That, uh, that the circle of beneficence, the circle of giving, all life is designed to operate upon. You know, every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give back freely to you oxygen. You say, look, I don't want to be part of the giving thing. If my body made carbon dioxide, I can keep it. It's mine. I have a right to it. Well, the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to... Die when we come to understand that the circle of life is a circle of love, and all life is based upon it, then we intelligently want to cooperate say, Lord, there's something wrong with me. I don't naturally want to give. I naturally want to take. I need a change of heart. Pour your right spirit into me. Change me over. And then we willingly want to cooperate with that, just like a child learns to, I really want, want to brush my teeth. All right, let's, let's go on to the, the rest of the question here. First John 2.1. At the end of this paragraph, it says, My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. What do you all think about that? One who speaks to the Father. Does the Father need someone to speak to him in our defense? No. You see, John 16, 26, when he was endowed, Jesus told his disciples, look, I'm not going to use any more figurative language. I'm not going to use any more parables. No more, no more metaphors. I'm going to tell you plainly what it's like. I will not... Pray the Father for you, because the Father Himself loves you. And the disciples respond right after John sixteen twenty six and say, Now you're telling us plainly about the Father. No more parables, no more, no more symbols, no more, no more dark speech. And we have this clear, endorsed, plain speech by Christ, plain speech by the apostles, and he says, I will not pray the Father for you. Pull out your Bibles and check it out. It's right there. Uh, if that's not enough. John eight, thirty one. If God is for us. Who can be against us? Who's on our side? God is for us. He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. God is setting us right. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and is also, as in, in addition to, is also interceding for us. The Father's on our side. He's working for our salvation. He's working to heal, restore, regenerate. But hey, guys, if you're worried, if that's not enough for you, i got good news. Jesus is right, right standing next to the Father. He's also, in addition to the Father, interceding for us. And in verse 24 of John, Romans 8, it says, The Holy Spirit intercedes with groans and utterances we can't understand. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was in the Son reconciling the world unto himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, God has always been on our side. He doesn't need pleading. He doesn't need interceding with. In fact, where does this whole idea of God needing to be pled with come from? Paganism. And see, look at the history of the, of the, of the Protestant churches. Protestant churches came from where? Catholicism. Catholicism. And where did Catholicism come from? Paganism. You understand the Catholic Church is not the continuation of the apostolic church. The apostolic church was continued to the Waldenses and other religious groups that were hiding from the oppression of the Catholic Church throughout Europe, if you recall. And the Protestant churches protested the abuses of the Catholic Church. And what is the core of the Catholic Church? I mean, look at the history of the Protestant Church. we got priesthood of believers. we got salvation by faith. We've discovered baptism by immersion. We've discovered the sleep and death. We've discovered so many truths over the time. But the core thing of Catholicism is that the Father needs to be pled with by Jesus, Mary, and all the saints. Everybody has to plead with him because he really needs to be pled with. And we've taken that distortion right into Protestantism and we've gotten all these other doctrines out of the way, but at the heart of it is we still need Jesus to plead with the Father for us because the Father really needs to be pled with. And I think this is the final piece to complete the Reformation, to get the truth that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The The Father. The Father and I are one. We're just alike. And I'm not going to pray the Father because He loves you Himself. This is the truth I think God is waiting on for us to, to complete, to, to be able to take to the world, Hey, Jesus, for unto us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, a Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the Father that we've seen. So how do we understand then this translation? Does anybody else have another translation besides one who speaks to the Father in our defense? Yes. What other translations do you have of 1 John 2, 1? Yes.
4: Bible in basic English says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may be without sin. And if any man is a sinner, we have a friend and helper with the Father, Jesus Christ, the upright one.
0: Oh, I like that. A friend and helper with the Father. Do you notice how that could be traditionally interpreted? We have a friend and helper who's working on the Father. Or that could actually, the way it's phrased, we have a friend and helper along with the Father. I like that very much. Any other versions? King James. James. It says we have an advocate with the Father. Traditionally, we've heard that through the pagan eyes of we have an advocate working on the Father. Rather than through the eyes of what Christ said, we have an advocate along with the Father. Romans 8, we have one who is also working on our behalf with the Father. In addition to. Yeah. Which do you all like better? Somebody that God needs Jesus to plead to him on our behalf, or that Jesus is working with the Father, they're working in cohort, they're working in harmony, they're working in unity, they're they're together putting their agencies forward for our healing. Which do you like better? Well, interesting the Greek word here that's translated in the NIV as one who speaks to the Father in our defense. You know what Greek word that is? Paraclete. Paraclete. Anybody know any other place paraclete is used in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, I will send the comforter to you, he used the word paraclete. Paraclete is described for the comforter that Jesus sent uh, to his disciples. And para, as in parallel, it, it means a helper who is parallel, a helper who is alongside, someone who stands beside and works with. That's what the word actually means. So he said, I would that you send not, but if you do, we have a paraclete with the Father. We have someone who stands alongside the Father, somebody who's helping alongside the Father. So, my paraphrase, my precious children, I am writing you that you will realize the power of God's love to free you from selfishness and therefore experience God's healing and no longer live selfishly. But if during the healing process relapses into selfishness occur, don't be discouraged. Jesus Christ stands at the helm of all power right next to God and is pouring out his love into our hearts to complete his restoring and healing work. How do you like that? You see, we've got this, these other versions. Now, I don't feel bad about these guys who translated it this way because they come to it with a mindset. They come to it with a, with a set of lenses on their mind already where, where they think that God needs to be pled with, so how else can we understand it? Any questions about the idea that Jesus has to plead with his Father, that there's some disconnect between the Father and the Son and working for our salvation? Or are they in unity, in harmony, in oneness? Yeah. Yes? Didn't
1: Mrs. White say that every sin uh, demands the punishment urged
0: Satan? Yeah, actually in Desire Ages, page 761 or 762, she says that in the opening of the great controversy, Satan alleged that the law of God cannot be obeyed. And if man should disobey the law, he could not be forgiven. Every sin must meet its punishment urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. 761. Desire of Ages, 761. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the idea that God has to punish sin, according to one of the founders of our church, that idea came from Satan, that God is a punisher. It's not something that comes from God's true character as revealed in Christ. How do we know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When the woman was called into adultery and they threw her before Jesus' feet, who was she standing before? And what did he do? Neither do I condemn you. He said, I did not come to the world to condemn it, but to save it, save it to heal it, to restore it, to recreate it, to regenerate it, to redeem it. That's what I've come for. I'm not, I'm not coming to condemn. The Father's not going to judge anyone, Jesus said. All judgment is given to me, but I'm not going to judge you, he said. This is all in John. We're talking about John today. He said, the very words that you speak, they will be your judge. In other words, your condition itself. Either you've opened your heart to me, accepted me, allowed me to pour out my spirit in you, which regenerates, heals, recreates, restores to eternal life, or you've rejected me, you've closed the heart to me, your own condition will be self-determining. Either you've reconciled to me, you've been grafted into the vine, my life flows in your heart now, or it doesn't. Isn't that true? Yes, why do I have to somehow inflict something upon you? You see, some people believe that Jesus or the Father will have to punish the wicked in the end, externally inflict upon them death. Well, think that through with me. Satan is talking and he says, look, I've never said God isn't powerful. I've always alleged he's powerful. In fact, James says the devils believe and tremble. Then who's got the power? What I've said is God isn't good. If God could just get a little grip on himself, hold his wrath and anger in check, hold his power in check, well, if he just wouldn't lash out against us, you understand, we could live eternally in our sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. Those who allege that the wicked die because God kills them are supporting the allegation that they wouldn't die if he didn't. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, James chapter 1, verse 15. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Galatians says that from the carnal nature, men will reap destruction. Our own condition, without God's intervention, without God's intercession, without God working to heal and restore, our own condition, sin, results in destruction and death, separation from God. God doesn't have to kill. In fact, as soon as Adam and Eve fell into sin, God began using His power. Father, Son, and Spirit began interceding, and understand this, they began interceding with the destructiveness of sin. Christ stepped in the breach. He took upon himself all the, the devastation that should come to us in order to, to heal and reconcile us to God. He set the angels and his powers and his agencies to hold back the four winds of strife, the principalities and powers of darkness to keep us from being destroyed. He sent his spirit into our mind to intercede, to put a desire for good, to convict, to woo. God has been using his power to intercede with the destruction of sin in order to heal and restore. It's not one member interceding with the other member. That's paganism. Man, there's so much to talk about in today's lesson. Okay, we're going to skip, and we're going to go on to Tuesday's lesson. Somebody read the second paragraph that begins, Though not able.
2: Though not able to tell us everything, John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, does teach us one of the most important of all truths, that Jesus Christ came in human flesh. That truth is something that all philosophy, science, and logic could never lead us to. Instead... God uses John to tell it to us.
0: And the question is, why was it important that Jesus came in human flesh? Was it important? It says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who live all their lives held in the slavery of fear of death, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You're all familiar with that passage. Let's explore the meaning of that passage. Let's explore the meaning. Let's talk first. What does it mean he shared in our flesh and blood? When Jesus came to earth in Bethlehem, born of a woman, was that the first time he'd come to earth in human form? No. 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 He'd visited Abraham, hadn't he? Eaten a meal with Abraham. Remember, he said to his disciples after his resurrection, So that you know I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost, I'm not some ethereal, mystical thing. I've really got to. T- Look, give me some fish. I'll eat some fish with you. Show you that, that I can eat. Got, I'm, I'm a real man. And what did he do with Abraham? Abraham fixed him a meal and he sat down and ate it. I think that was pretty tasty for the commander of heaven to come down to earth and eat some of that stuff that Abraham cooked him? A goat. You know, how gracious of our Heavenly Father of Christ to come down and, and, and be patient enough to wait for him to remember I mean, if you remember it was probably a little bit of a few hours to had to go slaughter the animal, had to go prepare the animal, cook it. It was probably a couple hours he sat there and waited for Abraham to prepare him a meal. Part of being hospitable. Yeah. Anyway, he ate that meal. He came in human form. Why would it not have been enough for him to come as a human in AD 27? He comes as, as a human and just appears at age 30 and starts his three and a half year ministry and does everything he did for the same three and a half year period he did once he you know, started his ministry, once he was baptized, once the Holy Spirit came in. Why did he just appear as a human? Why would that not have been sufficient? He
3: couldn't have
0: developed a character. Say that louder. Not have a oh, interesting. You see, doesn't the Bible teach that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man? Hebrews 5.8, that says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Did Christ have to learn something? Well, Hebrews 2 said because he suffered, he, when he tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Hmm. How have you often heard that passage? That passage that when he suffered. Well, the SDA Bible Commentary says the following about that very passage. And it's on volume 7, page 407. It says, the human nature of Christ felt the full force of temptation... Otherwise, Christ would not have understood the terrific struggle of a poor sinner who was mightily tempted to yield. Does anybody want to like, take umbrance with that interpretation? Christ would not have understood the infinite God had to actually become a human in order to learn something he didn't already know That somehow, by becoming human, God gained something in knowledge he didn't already possess? Would that mean that prior to becoming human, God was not all-knowing? That there was some aspect of God that needed completion in his knowledge base before he was aware of our plight? Are you comfortable with that interpretation, anybody? Yes.
2: Sin is not only in humanity. Sin is in heaven and in hell also. Sin originated in heaven where there's no humans. So why would God have to become a human to understand sin? I'm sure he faces, he faces temptation every day to smite, to smite Lucifer and be done and over with it.
0: Well, James says that God cannot be tempted. James 1.13. No one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone.
2: Well, you know what I mean. As much of a temptation as he's going to face here on earth...
0: No, I, I don't think that's right. I think that's why he became as a human, because God could not be tempted, but Christ in his humanity could be tempted. So there is an aspect of temptation that Christ experienced, but was it for the purpose of God understanding or learning? The infinite God couldn't really empathize, couldn't know how bad it is for us. And this is how it's often interpreted. And then Jesus is up there telling the Father, Father, you don't understand because I was human. I went through the struggle. You don't know how bad it is on those. Please be merciful, Father. Do you like that?
3: I'm just remembering Jesus in the garden. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He he has differentiated. I don't want to go through this from what might be the Father's will. And and so there is some differentiation, and it goes along with what you were reading earlier about learning obedience. He's learned, by by the time of the Garden of Gethsemane, he's learned that He needs to be obedient to what the Father's will is because he has has left some
0: of that behind to become a human being. Okay, I like that. He did learn. Now, Christ is this unique being in all history. Was he fully God? Yes. Was he fully man? Yes. Yes. So when he's learning, was it the fully God part that was learning or was it the fully man part that was learning? So it wasn't his divinity praying to his Father saying, not my will be done, thy will be done. It was his humanity Praying to his father. So the divine part of him, was it the divine part learning something? Or was it the human part learning something? That's an important distinction to make, isn't it? I still don't like this idea that has any interpretation or spin on it that would suggest that God needed to learn something. But there is a way we can understand this yet.
3: The only reason that we need to be so convinced that God, quote unquote, learned this is that it shows how much he cares.
0: Well, that's because we have this idea that he didn't already know, he wasn't compassionate, he wasn't caring, he wasn't loving, he wasn't sympathetic, he wasn't, he wasn't able to you know, sympathize with our temptations. And easiest way in the back. We need to know that
1: he went through what we're going
0: through. Oh, you know, that's a very, very good insight. In fact, Ellen White makes that statement in Desire of Ages very early on, though, like page twenty twenty-two or something. Because he became human, we can know. He did this partially for our knowledge, for our comfort, so we can have confidence. Not that he needed to learn, but we didn't trust him. And so part of this was restoring in us confidence or trust in God that he really does know. So I like that part of it. Is there another piece, though? Yes. Uh,
1: Hebrews 4.15 gives me a lot
0: of comfort. I like that one, too. Tell us us what it says. tell us about the high priest. Uh, For we
1: do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our
0: weakness, but was in all points... Yet without sin. Okay, have any of you all been tempted by your own feelings?
3: <laughs>
0: yes, James 1 says that, uh, that no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted, we're drug away and enticed by our own evil <laughs> desires or feelings. Hebrews 4.15, you just quoted, said he was tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. Does that mean Christ was tempted by his own feelings? Yes. Look in Gethsemane. Didn't Gethsemane, did Christ have powerful emotions that tempted him to avoid the cross? That tempted him to save himself? Did he give in to those emotions? Did he say yes to them? Or did he at every turn say, not my will, thy will be done. I will give my life freely. No one can take it from me. So even though he's tempted like us to act in self-interest, to act selfishly, to act to save himself rather than give himself in love, he experienced temptation in every way like us, but yet at every turn. And this is what's so remarkable. Because you think at those times in your life, we've all had those times where we found ourselves in a circumstance where self was on the line. Our reputation, our life, something in that urgency, that power from from selfishness comes up and we would do anything. We would hurt somebody to protect self. You know those intensity of those emotions. Christ experienced that even more than us. See, we experience those types of temptations to act in self-interest under the umbrella of God's grace. With God's Holy Spirit still working and striving for us. With God's angels there interceding in our behalf. But Christ in Gethsemane and through the cross was given up to be sin, though he knew no sin. He was abandoned, as it were, by his father, let go to fight this battle in his own human strength. And he won the battle. It's amazing what he did. Incredible. Love, vanquished selfishness in Christ. What we see here in this Hebrews text, he doesn't help angels. What does that mean? Didn't the angels need the truth of God's character revealed by Christ? Yes, we've had that in many places. Colossians 1, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. The angels had questions that needed clearing up. It was through the death and life and death of Christ that that Satan was exposed for a liar and fraud, that the truth about God was revealed, that they were solidified in their loyalty. But yet it says it's not angels he helps, it's man, which implies there's something more than revelation of truth going on. Revelation of truth is essential to win us to trust, but mankind needed more than just to know God can be trusted. What did we need?
3: We need to be healed.
0: To be healed, we needed the perfect character of God restored in humanity. We needed a law, it's the new covenant experience, the law of love written on the heart and mind. We need perfection of human character. Who of us could do that? Did Christ do that? Interestingly, so the model that we discuss in this class, Christ became human in order to develop a perfect character, which is the remedy to sin. And it is this he freely offers to all who accept it. Christ didn't need to become human in order for God to know something he he didn't already know, but he became human in order to procure in humanity a perfect character. And thus, it's now equipped with this human character that he procured by his own life and death experience that he offers to us freely. I'm going to read to you from one of the founders of our church. Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Notice, our sins in the past are remitted through God's forbearance, not through a penalty paid, through God's forbearance. But that's not enough. More than this, Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. What is the New Covenant? It says in Hebrews. What's he going to do in the New Covenant? Write the law in the heart and mind. Uh, We become partakers of the, Peter says, divine nature. The nature of God is love. Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. God is love. He pours himself into our hearts. We become connected to the branch. We are the vines. He is the branch and his life flows in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is a real regenerative healing process because of Christ's victory in our behalf. He won the battle that we couldn't win. He destroyed the very infection. So let's go back to the question then. It says that he took upon himself human flesh he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil, the devil's power. John 17, 3 says, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So eternal life is knowing God. Eternal death is? Not knowing, Not knowing God. So Satan's powers, two things. One, lies about God that we believe that keep us from knowing Him, that separate us from Him. And lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Satan lied about God, and many intelligent beings believe those lies. And once the circle of love and trust was broken, what came in its place was fear and selfishness. I no longer trust you, God, because I now believe you're not a good guy. I believe all these bad things about you. I believe the lies. So I'm afraid of you. And because I can't trust you to watch out for me, I've got to watch out for self. So lies believed Satan's power. And selfishness, the selfish character that manifests because of the lies believed Satan's power. Christ destroys him. How? By, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. A revelation of truth, which destroys the lies and wins back to trust, destroying him as the power of death. And... At the cross in Gethsemane, those two antagonistic powers battling it out. Are you going to save yourself, Jesus? You're going to give yourself in love. No one can take my life. I give it freely. And in Christ Jesus, love overcame the desire, the temptation to save self. And Satan's power was broken, vanquished, destroyed by a human, intelligent being, the God man Jesus Christ. The victory is won. That he came to destroy the power of Satan's government, and he did. Now the question is, how many of us will accept what he's done and let him reproduce it in us, that we go about loving others more than themselves? First John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our life for each other. Revelation 12, talking about those ready to meet Jesus when he comes. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. The desire to save self has been replaced. The desire to give self in love has been written in again. They would rather die than act in self-centered ways anymore. These are the people ready to meet Jesus. Yeah, Linda.
1: So let's bring it back to the first question you asked in the very beginning then. Um, These people had fallen so much into selfishness and into these lies that now he needed to give them a new principle and say, go back to the very beginning again.
0: Excellent, exactly. The new principle, which wasn't actually new, as Russell pointed out, was taught through all the Old Testament, but it was new to their minds. It was new to their understanding. It was new to their perception. It was new to their awareness. It was new for their comprehension.
1: They didn't understand that the mind was uh, uh, was the main thing, because now they were doing all these things that the commandments told them to do. But he said, look, I'm gonna, I've given you a new commandment, and even if you hate your brother, you're killing him.
0: Exactly right. Was it Matthew chapter 5? You say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. He's telling us the issues of the acts of sin that we all focus on, that we think that sins are the bad things we do. He's telling us those things are the symptoms of the sick and twisted heart. And it's the heart that needs renewal. It's the heart that needs regeneration. It's the heart that needs the law of love written in again. And then when that happens, the symptoms take care of themselves. The behaviors and actions change. But we focus on the behaviors, which is what the Pharisees did. All the behavioral rules to make behaviors right. The hearts never changed, and they could then plot his murder while they were keeping the rules and wanting him down by sunset so they could keep the Sabbath. How crazy is that? Because there is no regeneration of heart. And that's the issue. Yeah, Wendell.
4: The same word that's translated new can also be translated fresh.
0: Fresh, yeah, fresh, new. Something that you haven't really appreciated before. Yeah, let's give it to you new. And, of course, talk that metaphor, new wine and new wineskins. Remember the metaphor about the new wine and the new wineskins? Meaning the new message, the message about God had to go forth in new hearts. The old heart, the old way of seeing things, the old way of understanding. Couldn't handle it, couldn't deal with it. Had to have a new regenerated heart in order to take that message forward. Let's look at Thursday's lesson. And in Thursday's lesson, top question there. Somebody read that top question or top Bible passage in Thursday's lesson
1: follow not
0: that which is evil, but that which is good. Keep it. Do Good is of God, he that doeth evil hath not seen God. He that doeth evil has not seen God. And it says, and so the question right after that is, what does John mean about those who had not seen God? Who had not seen God? How does one see God? When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John three three, it says Jesus replied to Nicodemus, says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Okay. But then, Mark chapter 14, starting verse 60, Jesus is on trial before the uh, Sanhedrin, before uh, the high priest. And it says, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then Revelation 1.7, look, he is coming with his clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So how do we understand this? You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. These people who see Christ coming in clouds of glory, sitting at the right hand of majesty, will they see Christ in his glory? Yes. Well, are they converted? Are they born again?
2: Will they be begging for the rocks and second Huh? Them that that
0: no, they, they're not. But then how, how is it then that we understand that only those who are born again can see it?
1: A perception can only like live. binoculars. If you look at something but you
0: don't have them focus, everything looks blurry. You can't see it. So they won't know it's Jesus actual actually. They'll see him and they won't know it's him because it's blurry.
1: What I'm talking about is that's what Jesus meant. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's like I have to focus refocus your binoculars or you won't be able to see this.
0: So when when he comes they'll be looking up and going, what is that? Huh, that's a blurry thing in the sky I don't have no idea what that is. Yeah.
1: Oh, you're
0: missing you're <laughs> he's talking about—the principle of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? I know, Christy. Thank you.
3: <laughs> go, go on. See, can also mean experience. You will not experience the kingdom of God unless you're unless converted.
0: You. Yeah. See, and and I think Linda was right about the vision. I was I was kind of playing a little bit, because a lot of people read these things very concretely. They do read these things concretely. But the point is, they will see them with their physical eyes. Their physical eyes will see Jesus coming, won't they? But when they see Him, will they see a God of love? Will they see a God of grace? Will they see a God who would give His life for them? Will they see a God who has tears in His eyes as He comes back for His people? And those that are lost are going to be lost. Will they see that? Or will they see a God who they see in their mind as severe, arbitrary, cruel, punitive, a God that we should be afraid of, a God that we should run and hide from, a God that is seeking to do them evil and and to hurt them? I mean, they see the physical representation of him, but do they see his kingdom of love? No, they don't see that. And that's why they run and hide and beg for the rocks and trees to fall on them. Because they don't see him for who he is. They see him for the lies that they have believed through all their life about him. And thus, we either settle into the truth about God now, so, so much so that we cannot be shaken out of it, and that's called the sealing. So settled into the truth that we can either, both intellectually and spiritually, we cannot be moved, or we settle so into the lies about God that no amount of truth, will shake us out of it that when we actually see the truth before us we have an example from scripture how about when they came to arrest Jesus up in the garden they came to arrest him you remember there was a flash of, of divinity the angel passes between them boom and they're all like woof, down on the ground this flash of light little evidence of truth there wouldn't you think and what'd they do a minute later it's, it's a trick he's tricking us and then Peter pulls out the sword cuts off Malchus' ear do you think he was actually aiming for the ear no. 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 no uh, Malchus was quick and ducked and just had his ear cut. And then Jesus says, Put away the sword. And then what does Jesus do? He it. I mean, think about this. Think about it. You're coming to arrest the guy. The guy gets his ear cut off, and Jesus heals the ear. And what, how do they see that?
2: It's perceived in the same way.
0: Is perceived in the same way. They misperceive the evidence. I mean, we have already evidences in Scripture when your mind is settled into the lies about God that you can even have Christ right before you revealing the truth about God and you can still misperceive it, misinterpret it, and still go straight into killing this God of love who would give his life for you. It's incredible the darkness of the mind that can happen. So we've been warned about that. And that's what's going to happen to them in the end. Okay? Now we can back up and do some other things in the lesson. Any other questions from the lesson? Yes?
3: How do you know that that the priest didn't know it was I mean, maybe they were just settle in their own selfishness and
0: they just rejected. Actually, I think there's truth in that. I think that they were convicted. I think the Holy Spirit enlightened the mind. I think conviction came to their heart. I think they knew that he was innocent. And there was no charges against them. Uh, they saw all the reports. They knew all this, but their power was threatened. Their hearts weren't converted. They have an intellectual insight that this was him, but they didn't want to have conversion. They didn't want to humble themselves. They, their pride cannot allow them to have this uneducated person that they didn't train under their control. So I think they did have awareness. But they rejected that awareness because it would have caused brokenness of heart and their pride was too strong. So I'm with you on that.
1: And then once you reject the truth, all lies can come
0: in. Yeah. I mean, remember the principle um, in Thessalonians they who did not love the truth were given over to strong delusion to believe a lie. Remember that? What does that mean?
2: If you reject the truth, the only thing left is lie. The only thing left to believe is lies.
0: Exactly. The only thing left to believe is lies. Not that God uses his power to make you delusional, but if we go out and the sky is blue and we take a light meter and measure the wavelength of light and I present that truth to you, blue sky, here's the wavelength, are you still free to reject it? Can you say, I refuse to believe it? I won't believe that. And then what's left for you to believe? The The only thing left, anything you'll believe after you've rejected the truth is a lie. So, those who refuse the truth are given over to strong delusion to believe a lie because God does not force people to believe the truth. And the only thing left for the mind to rest upon is lies. In closing, in Sunday's lesson, it talks about a special calling. We don't have time to go through a lot of this. But in the special calling, the questions I had for you all to think about is, what makes the call special? Does God's calling of an individual have anything to do with the individual? With their willingness, with their mindset, with their qualifications, with their attitude? Can God equip people with abilities, with talents, with skills? And we've got examples of that in the Old Testament and New Testament. But can God give people willingness against their will? No. 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 And so one of the keys to, to be called maybe by God would be a willingness to be called, wouldn't it? Yeah. Jonah was called. Because of the particular mindset he had for a particular purpose. Jonah was the perfect man for that mission. Why? Because God knew Jonah's heart. God knew Jonah wanted to work with God, but God knew Jonah was not biased against God. God knew Jonah was not hardened against God. God knew Jonah loved and knew who God was, but God knew Jonah was biased against the Ninevites was a prejudiced bigot and hated the Ninevites. And so while he wanted to work for God, his own bias and prejudice has gotten away, so he would rather personally die <laughs> than go and save the Ninevites. He hated them so bad. And God knew that. And so do you think God didn't know the beginning from the end? So he calls Jonah. What's Jonah do? He runs out on a boat. And God knew Jonah was going to do that. And he said, this is a perfect man for this. Why? Because then the storm comes, and then Jonah goes in the sea, and then what comes? A great fish. Now who was the God of the Ninevites? Dagon, Dagon, which was the fish god, and so here they are all out there, you know, some fishermen out at the sea who worship the fish god, and here comes this giant fish and barfs up Jonah on the sea, and they go, "Whoa, we to listen to this guy?" <laughs> he's, a, he's a prophet from our God. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, I think Jonah was perfect because of his attitude, because God wanted to present his prophet to those people in a way that they would most likely listen to what he had to say. And if Jonah just would have gone straight over from Jerusalem and not been barfed up on the beach by a fish, it's very likely that he might not have listened.
2: Same thing with Paul. My point was, it was a special calling,
3: that he wasn't
0: willing. Uh, but he, he was willing to work with God, but he wasn't willing to do what God wanted him to do. You see? Yes. Yeah. So I think, God, I think that for all those reasons, he was still the perfect man for the job. Our gracious Heavenly Father. We thank you so much that you have gone to such great lengths to to reach us, to meet us, to to send your son down, to reveal the truth, to win us, to trust. But much more than that, Lord, send your son to win the victory we could never win to reveal the truth about you perfectly, to restore us to trust, but more than that, to establish perfectly your character of love again in this species. We ask that you will take your spirit now and and fill our hearts, connecting us back to you again and taking all that Christ has achieved and reproducing it in us so it's no longer we that live, but Christ lives in us. And we can go out now as your representatives, your agents, telling this world about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.